This is Audio Tractor, discussions around music and creativity. I'm Alan Strickland. Award-winning producer Paul Worley is with us today. One of the things that people really enjoy about the music business is hearing the quirky stories and strange things that have happened over the years. Mm. And I'm familiar with a story about the studio called The Money Pit that you used to own and the day that a garbage truck came crashing through the front of the building. Yep. It was an old warehouse that uh, the drummer Eddie Bayer's father had built out of a kit. And he had Wait, a re- it was a warehouse built from a kit? Yes. Yeah, it was funky. It, it was <laughs> Yeah. But you know, it's still there. And so um my buddies, we decided we wanted to do some live gigs. We were tired of being session guys and we thought, well, let's go over to Eddie's warehouse and we'll just set up in there and we'll just play. So we were in there rehearsing and going, damn, this sounds good. You know, let's, well, we ought to just make this into a recording studio. I mean, we were really stupid. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, we, we knew nothing about recording. And just one thing led to another. And it was like, well, we got to buy, we need to buy a real console. But if we're going to buy a real console, we, we're going to have to build a floor strong enough to hold it up because there's already holes in the floor of this one. Okay, we're taking notes. Okay, floor, new console. Oh, we need a... <laughs> and it just one thing led to another, and we had a full-blown studio after a couple of years. But all homemade. We built the walls. We did it ourselves. And you actually recorded some records that were hits there, right? Lots of them. The Money Pit we had for about 10 or 12 years. And it became the home of many, many hits, many, just 10 years of, of hits right in the smack in the middle of my career. So we did a lot of Martina McBride records, Sarah Evans. We did, going back, we did Highway 101 and and the Desert Rose Band. And uh, it's just so much work that we did there. And, uh, and we kept adding. We plowed the money back in. We would build better sound booths and better... Uh, bought better mics and better equipment. You know, we were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on 3M digital machines and Mitsubishis and all these. So we, we were happy there. It was down home. It was funky. It was everything I like about a studio because it sounded good and it and it was not pretentious. And I was able to charge a good rate to my artists so that we could work longer days, more days, more hours and make better music. So we never made a penny. Eddie, really? ba- Eddie Bears and I would we would laugh like, well, it's Christmas time, end of the year. You reckon we ought to pay ourselves something? I, was like, I don't know what's in the bank account. Well, there's about well, there's ten grand in there. Tax man's gonna get it either way, you know. Okay, well, there's five for you and five for me. Happy New Year! After a year of recording, <laughs> yeah, really, <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah, that was it. So we were happily going on because we were making money off the recordings. We were selling records. We we were doing lots of sessions. Everything was going well. What happened was uh, I got a phone call from the studio manager one night. Uh, Paul, um, there's been a problem. I got to tell you, you need to come over. You really do. And I'm going, man, I'm busy. I, I can't. I've got meetings going on over here at the record label. I can't get over there, Jim. He said, oh, no, no, really, you should come over. I No, I'm really, uh, just tell me. Well, the garbage truck from Queens 
garbage company across the road, uh, the, the, the parking brake failed and the truck rolled down the hill right in, into the front of our building and plowed into the building. And so it's all caved in. And the piano's okay, but under the building, I don't know. <laughs> and I said, I'll be right over. <laughs> <laughs> was anyone there when it came crashing in? Nobody was there. And But we didn't have garbage truck runs into the front of building insurance. And so, I did not realize there was a special rider for I that. I didn't either, and we, <laughs> but we, we didn't have that, and so um, it put us out of business. Really? Yeah. So if someone had been in the building, there would have been injury? Well, if, uh, typically people didn't hang out in the front lobby of the building. It was empty. So the piano booth was in the front of the building, too. So if there had been a piano player in there, that, that could have been bad. And how far into the studio did the garbage truck make it? Uh, <laughs> the cab got in there. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was. The uh, do-it-yourself warehouse kit building, how did it survive? It's still there. We we got out of there and sold all our equipment. And um, Dan Rudin bought the building from Eddie uh, some years later, and um, they rebuilt the front, and and he's got a recording studio in there. And it's still rocking. So it has lived on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's lived on. So the money pit wasn't just a clever nomenclature. It was true. Yeah. We laughingly named it after the movie, but we knew that you know we were never going to make any money in the recording studio business. But we needed it as a tool to do what we do for a living, which is make music. Do you ever have an artist get really particular about, oh, I've got to have this for vibe, or I have to have this lamp, or this incense? Do you ever have to jump through any of those hoops? Well, we have. I, I have. I try to avoid working with people like that. Really? It's like, dude, you know, close your eyes. Make up whatever you want to see. <laughs> we're, we're making a record here, you know? Uh, so, so you don't you don't vibe out the studio no. with dim dim lamps. We, or... we do actually we do. And when we were working at the Money Pit and then later at the Warner Studio, we had Christmas lights up um, all year long, and that was our vibe. I saw them sort of strung across the console. I mean, yeah. did you have them up anywhere else? Well, sometimes, but mostly just across the console. Right, sometimes. I'd... I have to take issue. I don't think one strand of lights across the console makes vibe. It made me feel Christmassy, okay. and every day is supposed to be like Christmas. So, but no tapestries. No, uh, no, no, really, no. And I, and sometimes artists would they would go, hey, you know, this, this place is just so. Oh, there's no vibe here. And now nobody ever said there was no vibe at the Money Pit because I mean we had, you know, the linoleum floor they make that looks like somebody barfed on the floor and it just kind of dried that linoleum the 70s artistic attempt yeah, it's yeah. got kind of the pink and stuff in it yeah. yeah not good that was the floor and and uh, the walls were, were uh, some of the very best pressed board particle board particle walls. board walls particle board walls it, some of them had like actual wood chips in the particle board but OSB. they they were really great and we didn't. We just didn't think they needed even needed to be painted or anything. We thought they had a really good look about them. So all of my visions of the Money Pit and the hit records that came out of there in the big cool studio was completely misguided on my part. Man, yeah, totally. It was a it was a funk palace. They were standing in a dumpster singing. Yeah, the best thing about it was in the in the break room. There was a big uh, graffiti wall, 
And the graffiti was fantastic. Uh, e equals MC squared plus or minus 3 dB. <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah. One of my favorite records that you've done, and I love the way it sounds, is the Charles Kelly record. Yeah. And I was talking to Clark about that, and he was like, oh, that was just jumping through hoops. He said the studio had a lot of vibe, but it also had electrical and hum problems and oh, yeah. isolation issues. So Skyville was the name of that studio, yes? Yeah, and I knew by then that, that if I had Clark, uh, it didn't matter where we recorded, he'd figure out a way to make it sound good. And he didn't like that, that I thought that. But nevertheless, he was always willing to go along for the ride. But why did you go there rather than the Warner Brothers on Music Row? Uh, Charles Kelly wanted to make a solo album, and it was in between albums for Lady A, and uh, Hillary was having her first baby, so he knew there was going to be a, a year off. So he asked me if I would do it, and I said, of course. He said, I got only one request. He said, I want to do it over there at Skyville. I said, oh, well, that's just a little, you know, that's just a rehearsal room that's got a console attached to it, you know, honestly. And he wouldn't be talked out of it. Because we had deer heads and antlers and lots of Christmas lights and an old piano, an old upright piano that hadn't been tuned and all kinds of crap just decorating the place in a telephone booth. It sounds like an adult version of a dorm room. Yeah, pretty much. But it was great. I mean, it was real. And rugs thrown down on the floor and... It was cool, and it was a cool-sounding place to just play. And then we had a control room, and we had a Trident console, and we had all of our collection of mics and gear and stuff and that we could plug in. And the only problem is you couldn't hear what you were doing. And now, as I recall, the first day of tracks was the day that the console decided to only play on one side. So we actually only had the right channel of the console. <laughs> Clark never told me, and he just took everything and just panned it in the middle so that we just kind of could work and continue. So that was the first day, and then they figured that out overnight, and, and the next day they had both sides of the console working. I never knew. He didn't tell me until after we were through tracking. So that was just his way of keeping the project moving forward. Absolutely. We're singing the praises of Clark Schleicher, by the way. Yeah, yeah. He's that guy. The MacGyver of recording engineers. And that project came out great, and it sounds good. It's, uh, it came out really great. It's one of the best-sounding albums that I ever made, and it, and it's a really good album. I mean, it really, really is. But And, you know, it just if, you, if you've got experience and if you know what you're doing, if you know what things ought to sound like, you can figure out a way to get them to sound that way. I like studios that are live sounding, that that have ambience, that are not controlled, not scientifically built to where they have no lingering artifacts after you make a noise. So you like a room with character rather than completely dead. Give me a room with character and I'd rather deal with the problems than a room that has no character and I have to create something that's not there. And I've always been that way, always. And um, Skyville was one of those. It was a great place. If we'd have kept it longer, it would still be cranking as a studio. But that was getting toward the end of the era of rhythm sections and recorded bands and, and the beginning of program music. 
Well, and that leads me to the next question. I mean, Skyville was basically a studio in a house. Yeah. But up several notches from a typical home studio. Right. So what we have is major studios closing, some of which on Music Row have been bulldozed to put up condos mm. or whatever. Yeah. And there is this push towards home studios. Some are just a guy with a laptop in the basement. Others can get fairly elaborate. Yeah. What do you think the difference is between making music in a studio and someone who just sort of puts on their slippers in the morning and takes a cup of coffee and sits down with their laptop? I mean, what's the long game on this? Where are we going? Uh, we've, we've hit this spot. I mean, the economics guide a lot of the the recording that's going now. It's just cheaper to be sitting in a room and creating ambience with, uh, you know, the plugins and and uh, playing things one at a time and and you know the wonderful programs that we have. I mean, it's amazing the drum sounds and drum sets that you can conjure up with all the plugins and and files at your disposal. But there becomes a sameness about it as people find the the coolest sounds. They they share them and all. Then you hear a record that's you know all of a sudden there's a whole trove of records that are all they all sound the same. Um, Everyone's using the same samples and the same plugins. Yeah. The actual instruments and the sounds are actually very tiny. They're very small, but they're surrounded with large, bombastic-sounding verb. And so you got this little tiny guitar or a tiny drum or whatever, but then you got this whoom. That follows. That follows. And so that's how you're able to create uh, the illusion of mass in that world, evidently. So, I, you know, it doesn't interest me. But uh, you know what? When it's done right, they make some damn great music. And when, and like anything else, if it's not done right, it, it's just mediocre. So vinyl came back in a surprising twist. Cassettes came back. That was never a great delivery medium, in hmm. my opinion. Right. Is there a day that large format consoles and big studios will come back? Hmm. I mean, I think some probably have to hang around for like big string dates, and I'm sure on the coasts for people who are scoring films, those have to be there. You can't do that at home. I used to think that, yeah, oh, you got to have a console. I, I'm not sure you need that, but you need you need good sounding inputs. So you need the gear. I mean, you can do it without the summing process that's in a console, although I miss that. I mean, that was part of the magic of working on consoles, the, the actual summing that the consoles had had a sound. Right, the Neve sound the or the Neve API sound. The Neve sound, the Trident, the Trident's lack of sound or whatever. <laughs> I, mean, I love Trident because it was just... Very simple. Yeah. So, you know, there's that to, to miss. But, you know, great mics, old mics, newly imagined old mics, large diaphragms. Um, but you have to have a room to put all these in. Yeah, preamps. Well, they got to sit in racks somewhere. They've got to be close to your hand, and they've got to be out of the way of the speaker's. Right, but the performance space that you're plugging all this into can't be an eight-foot ceiling. No, no, you need to be in a room that, that has a sound. So you need the dimensions of the room more for the instruments to live in. Well, and you need to have the room, the control room's got to be tall enough. The walls have got to be wide enough and tall enough that they don't uh, create a lot of reflection problems in, in what you're trying to hear. But, you know, and then people that end up making them at home, they just get used to whatever's bouncing around in their bedroom. 
Speaking of huge recording spaces, you used to play at RCA back in the early days, right? Yes. Yeah. And that is a that is a huge room. Yes. Yeah, and I like the room. It's it's a it's a huge room that's fairly dead. It doesn't really give you any splash. You you walk in there, you think, oh man, this is gonna sound like being in the Taj Mahal, and it's like, well, no, it's not really because it's the the sound goes away quickly. Um, other studios are that way too. It just so just the size of the room doesn't necessarily give you the splash. Uh, they've got to be reflective surfaces and re- reflective walls giving it back to you. And that also gives it back to the musicians when they're playing, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah. Makes the instruments take on that larger-than-life character. Yeah. yeah. So if you, uh, you had to choose between API, Neve, Trident, what would you do, or are they just different tools for different purposes? I would choose Neve or API just to, for the warmth the gouge factor. Of, the trident really doesn't have much of its own sound. It, well, you know, it's got a sound, but it's fairly stiff. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's very it's very present. So you have that immediacy that comes through the console, but it doesn't give you in, any warmth. You have to pull that through the console. You have to manufacture that or use out. You know, a lot of outboard iron. So the Lady A records were actually mixed through the console. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, there's, you, there's just no mistaking that whole summing bus thing from my perspective. All, all the ones that we did were mixed uh, through the console, through the, the Neve. Yeah, Neve VR60. Uh-huh. Right. It's also my understanding that you were working at Warner when you heard Lady Antebellum. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't want to go to the showcase because I thought the name was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was prescient in that way. I didn't. I, I wasn't thinking that. I just thought well, that's dumb, you know. But uh, Tracy Gershon and Chris Lacey were both working in the A and R department for me, and they said you got to go to this. You have to go. If you don't go, we're we're just going to quit. And so I said okay. So I showed up. There they were. Third and Lindsley set up. The place was packed. Every label was there. A lot of big folks in the room. Everybody. They were all there. And and I'm sitting there going, well, great. You know, timing's everything. And they played, and they played the perfect set. They played every song. That mo- they played most of the songs that ended up on the first album. They played them. They had a band that sounded kind of like a funky uh, Doobie Brothers kind of band. That was their vibe. They played the songs uh, really well, and they closed the set with uh, Love Don't Live Here. And I'm going, well, there's the first single right there. So show's over. I ran straight up to the stage. Didn't even think. Straight up. I grabbed Dave Haywood's hand and said, I'm Paul Worley. Dave, nice to meet you. You guys are great. You can have anything you want from me, whatever you want. I'm there. I'm in. Said the same thing to Hillary. Said the same thing to to, uh, Charles. And um, they gave us the shot at Warner's. And they said, um, we want to be at Warner's, and, we, and we'll, we'll give you guys 60 days to make a deal, and we won't talk to anybody else. And everybody else wanted to sign them, too. It was obvious. I mean, it was one of the most obvious signings you could ever do. So we, I was thinking, really, I was happy because it was going to pull me out of the doldrums to work with them because I needed, I needed some, some wind in my sails. I was, I was getting stale. And uh, didn't know if I had any more life left in me as a producer. So 
one thing led to another, and I couldn't get my boss in L.A. He wouldn't do the deal. He wouldn't do it. It was a big deal. It was a rich deal, and he wouldn't do the deal. And I couldn't get him to do it. The day he declined to do the deal, I got the word, and I called him up, and I said, you know what I got to do? And he said, well, what? And I said, if you're not going to sign this, you don't need me. You're going to have to let me go. And he, he said, well, okay, I'll do that. I said, well, I want to ask you one thing. is I, I don't want you to hold me to a non-compete clause. I want you to let me go. And I'll walk away from my contract, everything. I want to record them wherever they go. And I don't even know if they want me anymore. But that's how much I believe in this act. And he said, okay, I'll do that. You were the head of A&R? Yeah. And stepped down to become a producer? Yeah, I, you know, I didn't see it as a step down. It was really it was a question of relevance. So it was, a, it was a question of, I can stay in this job, I can be the, the, the A&R guy, and not be worth a damn to anybody anymore in the music world. Or I can quit and seek relevance, and this is the best shot at that I'm ever going to have. So you knew that? I knew that. I knew that as sure as we're sitting here. I knew that. So uh, after talking with my wife and after talking with God and talking with myself, I, I had a lot of conversations that led up to that <laughs> phone conversation. So I was ready. And I just said, i got to seek relevance. Every, you know, it's, it's the only, only thing for me to do. So I did it. And that was some serious wind in your sails. Yes, it was. It was the way back for another decade for me. It was cool. If you had advice to give someone, you were talking about being stale and not feeling relevant. What advice would you give to, because right now I'm sure there's a lot of people in that situation. Yeah, I wouldn't. How do you survive? It's really tough to make a living except for the very top, top, top one or two percent of people that are working. Is that because the sale of physical media like yeah. CDs is just over? Yeah, the there's sales, no product to buy. No, yeah, I mean, you know, you look at what you make off of streaming; it's just like point zero zero eight cents per stream. I mean, what's that going to get you? Well, compare that to the old days of selling a CD or getting something played on the radio. What was what was that revenue stream? Well, you would get your share. You'd get your you know four or five percent of of a sixteen ninety eight sale. $16.98, not 4 or 5% of 0.08 cents. And when CDs, I think it was Walmart that started selling CDs for nine ninety nine. Yeah, Was that yeah. sort of the first hit? Yeah. The big boxes got us first. So I was working at Sony, and we were selling CDs for 16 17 bucks. And I remember in the marketing meeting, the marketing guy coming in going, I just left Anderson, who was the... The, they were the go-between for Walmart, and they told us that Walmart's going to sell our CDs for nine ninety-seven. And uh, and I said, I'm going, but we sell them to them for ten bucks. And they said, he said, they said they don't care. They're going to sell them for nine ninety-seven, and they'll lose money on us, but they'll sell batteries and tires and clothes and use us as a loss leader. So that. Of course, then all the other big boxes immediately priced down to nine ninety seven. We became a we went from being a sixteen or seventeen dollar world to a nine ninety seven world. That's a big drop. 
because you know th- that was that wholesale. I mean, th- they ended up gouging us down to so they were making money off of us again. But later on, when when streaming came, I mean, that just that just knocked the wind. It knocked us out. So when Apple started the iTunes Store, ninety nine cents a song was that the next step down? Yeah, yeah. Because you could buy just a song, yeah, not right. a whole so album. Yeah, so then we became a singles. You know, yeah, it's like being back in the singles world. You're not selling albums. I don't, I don't know. I guess people make albums. Do people listen to albums anymore? Really? I mean, do they go home and sit down and listen to a whole album of an artist? Because I don't see people consuming in that way. Someone you've been working with for a while, uh, maybe a couple of years, Kylie Fry. Yep. And she's had great success uh, in Texas. Yep. I was not aware that Texas had its own country music chart. Yep. And she's been number one down there. Yep. She's she's and it's, and for a girl that's damn near impossible. But she she kind of broke the mold. Is country music that male dominated? Yes. Okay. And upcoming projects with uh, Brassfield. Yeah, I just did did a project with Brassfield, and we're trying to figure out you know how to get that music out and get them a home. I'm going to work with Daly and Vincent coming up, which are mostly a, a bluegrass group that are pretty popular in the indie world and uh but they want to make a a 90s sort of country album an album of great songs and great playing they're not really focused on radio as much as they are just feeding their built-in listeners and fans something different than what they've ever done before and you know then hope that that opens up things in other ways too so moving forward not necessarily in a known direction. No, not known at all. <laughs> Paul Worley, thank you very much for your honesty and your candid nature. We certainly appreciate having you. Thanks, Alan. You've been listening to Audio Tractor, discussions around music and creativity. Thanks to Biff Watson for the use of his studio, Clark Slicer for technical expertise. Kevin Harper for our musical signature, and Paul Eckberg for providing the editing suite. Your questions and comments are welcome. Send them to audiotractor at outlook.com. I'm Alan Strickland. Thank you for listening. (laughs) ¶¶